0: dot com slash lawless terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed
1: hello sunshine I'm Alexi Lawless and welcome to the State of the Union podcast where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red white and blue colored glasses this week we'll be talking well what stood out from all the leagues that are going on right now around the world we'll be talking McKenney and Bale and Reina and the Spurs documentary MLS my first retirement, I'll give you a little story about my first retirement and so much more, but first joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mosse, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this Monday, September 21st of the year 2020?
2: I am doing well and excited to talk about the Spurs documentary because not since the Sopranos have I seen you direct so much vitriol towards a television show via text. Some of the text exchanges we've had about this documentary the last few days have been frankly extraordinary. So I'm glad you now have the platform to tell the world your opinion of this uh, Amazon Prime program.
1: All right, listen, as, as, as you all know, we usually start off the pod and give you our, our breakdown of things that we have watched. And, and yes, it is true, Masi. I've come to the conclusion of the Tottenham Hotspur uh, documentary called, I think it's called All or Nothing, right? Is that uh, what the, what, the, what it's called? All right. It's called All or Nothing. It's a nine-episode documentary. And basically, it documents the 2019-2020 season of Spurs. And as we know, just in, in normal days, uh, it would be, at least on the surface, interesting because you have Jose Mourinho. Uh, and it's a big club in Spurs with plenty of drama that goes on. But obviously, this also goes through the uh, the entire transition into uh, 2020 and the pandemic and how that affects it, fine. So that's, that's the premise of it. I'm, I'm not gonna, look, I'm gonna give you my, it's not gonna be a deep dive or anything here. In a word, underwhelmed, uh, and I'll tell you why. I think you had mentioned over the last couple of uh, episodes that, that Jose Mourinho is the star, okay? And you're absolutely right, he is the star. Without him, it would be even worse. Okay. So he is the only saving grace. When it comes to Mourinho, I was not given any more insight into who he is. I already knew he was a character. I always, already knew he was a bigger than, bigger than life type of personality. And I already knew that he saw that as an asset and used that and leveraged that in the, in the way that he went about his business. There was nothing, and I mean nothing, that I gleaned when it came to a a further understanding of what is, to many, arguably one of the great coaches ever to coach the game. Now, that's a little harsh on him, because as we say many, many times, a, a documentary or a reality series, which is really what it is, okay, is all in the editing. And there is a performance aspect to it. And this is a hell of a performance, but it's a hell of a performance in, I guess, what what we called a lame script. So it might not be his fault. He may be a incredible mind and certainly his results over the years and his body of work would, would say that is so. But you did not see that in any way. Number two, when it comes to, and this was where I will give him credit, he has nailed his team perfectly. It is the most toast, boring, unenergetic, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to think of the word that, that properly encapsulates just how soft, that's it, soft a team it is, based on this documentary, once again. And once again, it can be shaded different ways. But everything that he said about his team lacking fight and being soft is on display. All right? This is not a team that I would ever want to go to battle with. Was it interesting? Not really. Was it entertaining? at moments. Okay. You know, the, the drama that at times is manufactured in these reality series. I mean, it was so far, it it was so lacking and limited. And yet I powered through it because of you, Mossy, because I wanted to make sure that I, that I respected the format and I respected what we were doing here in order to give you my, uh, uh, my, my assessment of it. Uh, There are much, much better Documentaries when it comes to the inner workings of what is going on. Hell, Ted Lasso is a better, more interesting, and more entertaining, and probably much more clear, uh, and accurate portrayal of what goes on in a club than what I just saw in Spurs All or Nothing. There you go. That's that is my review. What do you agree? And what and once again, if you haven't seen it, you should you should check it out. And we're not giving anything away other than I'm completely panning it here, but. I'm not giving anything away because it's not like there's cliffhangers. It's not like there's anything amazing that you see or hear really when it comes to it. I will say this though, and this is my final thing. In watching Spurs now in this new season, there is a part of me that because I watched the documentary, I am in a strange way more attached to it. And yes, I will say more interested. So maybe all in all, when it all is said and done, they actually got their hooks into me and it achieved what they set out to do. All right, Masi, what about you?
2: No, I mostly agree. I mean, I, I get some enjoyment out of all these documentaries, but there are some that really stand out like Sunderland or Leeds. And then there are a bunch of others that are pretty formulaic and get tossed into the pile. And this is definitely tossed into the pile. Um, they they tried to build the whole thing around Jose and they dispensed of Mauricio Pochettino rather quickly. It wasn't like he was sacked two weeks into the season. It was in November. And I saw Pochettino joking in an interview that, boy, I was there for five and a half years and I got 35 minutes in <laughs> the documentary. But uh, okay, I get that. They they, they felt like Mourinho was a much more compelling personality and so let's build it all around him. But boy, the whole Mourinho thing got old around like episode four or five. You have to be a real Mourinho groupie to be able to uh, sit there and, and still be entertained with those halftime, you know, speeches and, and, and pregame talks. I mean, all the way through, this was a slog to get through nine episodes and it actually frankly reminded me a little bit of the Manchester city one, which I didn't love either. When you build it too much around the manager uh, after a while, the novelty wears off of, of, like I said, his, his, his pregame and halftime speeches. And, and if there's nothing else, if there aren't compelling personalities, otherwise on the team, then yeah, it becomes a bit of a slog.
1: And, and here's the thing. And once again, I go back to, look, it, it, it might not be fair, but this is, the, this is the way that Mourinho was portrayed. And yes, he is at times the show, okay? But uh, he's the star of a lame show, okay? And when I think about Mourinho and the way that he is depicted and just the banal and boring and hackneyed type of, uh, of motivation time and time again, you know, I I hear so much about the, the, you know, this is a whole nother level and they're thinking on a different plane uh, when it comes to the best players or the best uh, managers in the world. And then I hear all of this crap that I know goes in one ear and out the other because it just gets completely lost about spirit and fight. How many times do we see Mourinho come in and say, you know, you have to fight and you have to really want it and nothing of any type of concrete, uh, instruction or motivation other than uh, team spirit and we gotta, we gotta, you got to work harder and you, you have to want to win or we have to score. No, sh- you have to score. How are you actually going to do that? And once again, maybe they took that out of the, uh, of the actual editing process and made it as, I guess, palatable or evergreen or big as possible. But in doing that, I think they do a disservice to Mourinho if that's actually what they did it. And here's the the potential dirty secret is that he's actually exposed and that this is really what Mourinho is ultimately all about. And it's not about X's and O's. And when it comes to the actual motivation where certainly some, some coaches uh, rest their hat, it's all used up and it doesn't affect players. And by the way, it has has nothing to do with generations. It just doesn't affect players. Okay. If you just sit there and scream and yell about, we got to score. We got to win. We got to play harder. We can't make mistakes. Yeah, Thank. Tell me something that I don't know. Tell me something that is going to make me better, that is going to make our team better, that I can't figure out for myself, or that as a team, we don't already know. And that was few and far between. There were very, very few moments, if any. And I can't even remember one where I said, oh, I get it. I understand why he is the special one. All right, Masi, anything else? That's it coming in hot right at the top of the show here, but I had I had to get it over. And like you said, I would, as we went through this, uh, I would text you at different points. And it was uh, texts full, fraught with, with angst and irritation and even bordering on anger at times. So I'm glad we got this out of the way. If there is a, uh, a, a rating to be had or a, uh, a number or something like that, it's like a, a two out of 10, 10's the best, to uh, zero is the worst. It's like a two, two thumbs down definitely for me. Okay, Uh, enough of that. Uh, so we've gotten that out of the way. Um, we'll talk more next week about uh, some other viewing habits and things that we are looking at. But we wanted to make sure we hit on this because I know you had been watching it and you had been talking about it. And we had been teasing it for a number of weeks, and I finally, uh, I finally finished. Thank God it's only nine episodes and it's done. I don't have to watch that again. All right, uh, all right. Let's, let's 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 just jump right into it, Mossy. We're going to start out with, uh, and maybe we we buried the lead a little bit here, and we should have jumped right into this, but all sorts of, uh, American connections. And, uh, I think fair to start on this one. And that is Weston McKinney and what he did over the weekend. So what did he do? Uh, this is a young American player. This is a young employer, American player who went over to Germany and, uh, Became a professional and, in doing so, grew into a incredible uh, young man and and uh, soccer player over at Schalke, and then made the head scratching and amazing and surprising to all of us move to Syria, not just to Syria, but to Juventus. And then on the first weekend of Syria, as it opens with Andrea Pirlo as the new coach of Juventus, the perennial powers, a super club, if there ever was one, he starts. He's in the starting eleven, and then against Sampdoria. Not only do they win, but he plays the entire game. Uh, he was wonderful from start to finish. Was he the best player on the field? No. Was it his best performance ever? No. But for an opening game, th- this, was, this was pretty special. It was memorable. It was um, something to, to, be, to be talked about. And I think it went as well as anybody could possibly uh, expect the only way it could have gone better is if he had scored a goal. And by the way, he even had opportunities to score a goal uh, in the game. I watched the entire, the entire thing, and I watched it specifically because Weston McKinney was there, and I wanted to see what this, uh, this looked like. In normal days, a, a Juventus-Sampdoria type of game, and I know Cristiano Ronaldo plays for the team. Would it have been high on the priority list? No. But the fact that Weston McKinney is playing and, uh, th- and what it means to the American soccer world, yeah, it warmed the cockles of my red-headed heart, Mossy, to uh, to see it. Uh, and congratulations to him for the start. Still a long way to go, and a lot of different things could change going on. But so far, so good, 90 minutes into his Serie A career playing for Juventus.
2: Yeah, I wasn't all that surprised he was in his starting eleven, only because uh, he had played well in that friendly against Nevada. And the Italian media had really been talking up all week that he might have earned himself a start against Sampdoria. And the point everybody keeps making, which I agree with, is that he... Uh, possesses certain skills that no other midfielder in that squad possesses in terms of the energy and the ground that he covers uh, the ability to win the ball back and also the ability to pop up in the box and and score goals as you mentioned he uh, was very unlucky not to score in this game the second goal he took a shot the goalkeeper saved that Bonucci put in the rebound and then had another shot that looked to me like it had crossed the line but goal line technology said no so um so yeah I think that's going to get him on the field quite a bit this season because it, you know we we uh, have made the Arturo Vidal comparison others have have uh, mentioned Edgar Davids but mm-hmm. uh it's sort of that sort of idea that you have a lot of uh talented technical players but you do need that that sort of energy guy to win the ball back and to do some of the dirty work and so I think that is going to get him on the field uh, pretty often this season
1: To your to your point about the comparisons and I want to bring this up because uh, you're right. We have we have made a lot of comparisons. When this happened, uh, the Italian press started uh, to call me and, and wanted to get quotes about, you know, who this player is, because a lot of them had not really followed him and didn't really know a whole lot about him. And obviously, because of my background in, in Serie A, they wanted to uh, to get a comment from me. And so I started coming out, like you said, we we, we compared him to Vidal. And, you know, I was talking about Gattusos and uh, N'Golo Kantes and uh, you, mean, you mentioned uh, Godavids and these types of, of, of players. And when those comments started to come out, it was amazing to me the reaction from a lot of American fans. And this, this stems from something we talk about all the time, which is our insecurity and our legendary inferiority complex uh, and and our fear. And this <laughs> this phenomenon where we purposely, uh, and very publicly lower expectations, and we we coddle uh what are younger American players when they when they go to what we perceive as higher levels in this effort uh, that is designed to to protect them it's it's rooted in this in this traditional type of fear that we have that if we pump them up or if we make comparisons to some great players like we like we have done that it is ultimately going to hurt them. And my point to those people were that, no, we're, we're in a different time, uh, and this is good. The pressure and the comparisons, and more importantly, the higher expectations are not only good, they, they are logical. And what it really comes down to, Mossy, is that we, as a United States soccer playing nation, and a lot of this we, we frame with, through the national team, but whether it's that or, or just in general, we need players who can handle those high expectations. We need players who can handle the hype. And we need players who can handle that uh, that attention. That's exactly the type of players that we need. And I will submit to you that if players can't handle that, then number one, they're not that good. And they probably weren't they weren't made to be the stars and the players that we need going forward. So I completely dismiss and reject the notion that we shouldn't have higher expectations, that I'm, being, that, that I'm hurting their chances of success by having the gall to compare them to others, uh, others out there and some very, very big players. We're at this point. And that Weston McKinney went out there and did that, and who knows what, how it's going to ultimately end. But then he did that with all of that attention and all of that focus and all those high expectations. That says a lot about who he is as a person and obviously who he is as a player.
2: Mossy. Yeah, and listen, when you compare a young player to an established star, to me, it doesn't necessarily mean you're saying he's going to be as good as the established star. You're just giving a sense of what kind of player he is. And, and people I know get really bent out of shape. How can you compare this guy who hasn't done anything to a guy who won this and that? It's just giving a sense of for people who don't, who don't know, who have never seen him play, what kind of player, what his style of play is. So, I, I, again, yeah, I don't I don't know why people get so bad of shape over that stuff.
1: All right. Let's uh, let's finish it here with uh, with Weston McKinney. And, and by the way, I think you hit, it, hit the nail on the head with his specific role and position and how he can make it his own and how he can set himself apart. And we've talked about this in previous pods where. You know, he, he's been asked to do so much at different places. By the way, ironically, he, he did show up at, at, right back during that game, uh, which, which, which he was fine with and he, and he adjusted with. And I know it's just Sampdoria and they should beat them and it's not a, a great team. But the, the Terrier or the Pitbull-esque type of moments, even with the small crowd that was, that was there, you could tell that they appreciated that. Uh, they appreciated that effort. Uh, and they appreciated that type of player because I think they all recognize, as you mentioned, that this is a player that they lack and that they need going uh, going forward. And, and I'll finish it with this. It was it, it was amazing to see. After Cristiano finally got his goal, because he had been stymied a couple of times, and you could see the frustration. He finally got his goal, which is what he lives and thrives on. And then the celebration, and there's Weston McKinney with Cristiano Ronaldo's arm around his shoulder after the celebration. And uh, I tweeted out and I said, Life moves pretty fast, and it does. I mean, this is this is wonderful for um you know for him, which gets us into the the question of uh, and I know uh producer Alex. Uh, I wanted us to ask uh, and maybe answer this question: Is Ronaldo Cristiano Ronaldo the best club player that America, that an American player has ever played with? And I started to think about this. Uh, and yes, you can definitely make the case. And you know, you can get all technical and not technical. I mean, the reality is that there are American players who played with Pele. Shep Messing played with Pele. Okay, um, or player American players that played with Cruyff back in the NASL, or played with. George Best or played with Lothar Mateus or whoever else it, it, it is. But, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo, Pele is probably the one that you can make an argument for. So, but, you know, people are going to downplay that because it was the NASL it was because of the United States. I, I mean, this is, I, I can definitely make a case. Cristiano Ronaldo is going to go down as arguably the best player ever to play the game. And that West McKinney is there celebrating goals with him, passing the ball to him, playing on the same team. That's wonderful. It's not just wonderful for his development, but it's wonderful for the image and it's wonderful for the perception of American soccer.
2: Yeah, the one thing I'll say is I continue to read uh, nothing but good things in the Barcelona press about Conrad de la Fuente, and it sounds like he is going to play some this season. So when he gets on the field alongside Messi, we'll be go. able to have this debate. <laughs> And it'll just be a launching pad for another Messi versus Ronaldo uh, debate.
1: Well, these are these are wonderful days, as you mentioned. A lot of uh, a lot of American connections and things to feel excited about, things to have hope for, and things to feel proud about. Which transitions us perfectly into uh, Gio Reyna. You know, th- this shouldn't come as a surprise that he was a starter on uh, on on day one for Borussia Dortmund, because we had kind of seen this coming. He's been groomed for it. He's been playing. Uh, There's obviously a relationship uh, both on and off the field with uh, Erlen Holland. And not only did he start, but he scored, scoring the first goal for Borussia Dortmund in this season. Uh, He looked great. And... Once again, uh, providing hope and promise and optimism for him as an individual player, but also as it relates to the U.S. men's uh, men's national team. First off, just uh, what did you think of the performance? And as I said, it shouldn't be surprising necessarily, but also where he played and how he played and how that may or may not fit in going forward with Greg Berhalter and company when it comes to the national team.
2: Well, the interesting thing for me is this goal scoring dimension to his game, because uh, he was impressive last season, but more as a, as a provider, as a facilitator, he had uh, one goal in 18 games in all competitions last season. He was that incredible long distance strike against Werder Bremen in the German cup. Um, and he's come out this season. He scored a bunch of goals in the preseason. He scored in that uh, cup match against Duisburg and then he scores here. So it looks like he's going to be a player who, in addition to all his other qualities is actually going to be a, a pretty regular goal scorer as well. So Boy, I mean, he, adding that to everything else he brings to the table, he's going to be a difficult player to keep out of the lineup. And, you know, we'll see. I mean, Royce came on for him. And uh, once Royce is 100% fit, you'd have to figure he's somebody that has to start. And, and Sancho has to start and Holland as well. So you do start running out of spots up there. But, you know, maybe uh, Lucien Favre can get creative with the formation and try to get all four of them in their reign of Sancho, Holland and, and Royce. So... These are, yeah, I mean, yeah. these, are,
1: these are good problems to have, by the way. Sure. We'll, we'll, save, we'll save the Reina stuff for a little bit later in the show as it relates to the national team. But as it, as it relates to what is going on right now, you mentioned something that's important, and it does apply also to, you know, even to someone like Weston McKinney. There's a lot of competition. And, and players that are either coming in, players that are coming back uh, from injury, players that are going to challenge. And it applies to him. It applies to Christian Pulisic. It applies to all of these players. And that, that's a good thing. Competition is a good thing. And the way that these teams look now may look very, very different uh, six months from now or, or a, year, uh, a year from now. But that they are being given these opportunities, that they are you know on the radar when it comes to uh, these teams and these, uh, these coaches are, uh, are, are good things. Um, anything else uh, you want to say about uh, Gio
2: Well, first of all, just to correct myself, because they made two substitutions at the same time. Uh, technically, Royce came on for Sancho and Julian Brandt came on for... Gio Reyna, uh, but, you know, you get the point. Um, I, get
1: the, I get the point. Um, let's, <laughs> I uh, mean,
2: just big picture, I don't know if you want to transition to big picture Bundesliga in Syria.
1: I, I, but I, I do want to mention um, just some other Americans when it comes to them uh, them playing. And look, th- this might be a good time to mention uh, Sergino Dest uh, because the rumors are that he is going to Bayern Munich. So in this list of teams that we've been doing over the past couple of weeks, when it comes to what Greg Burhalter and what we are going to have, on the books, add, uh, well, no, don't add, because we we've still have we still have players when it comes to Bayern Munich. But if if this ends up being where junior Desk does go to Bayern Munich, and by the way, another one there that will be facing stiff competition when it comes to actually getting into that 11 of what is arguably the best team in the world right now, and they showed it right off the bat coming out uh, and just... Uh, you know, saying they not, not even, miss, not even uh, missing a beat. You know, then you had Josh Sargent playing uh, with the with the start Brooks, uh, Tyler Adams. So these are all these are all good things. And at the start of all of these types of uh, seasons, from an American perspective, right now, these are these are all positives. But. Uh, you and I have been around a long time, and as I said, the way it looks at the beginning of the season may look very, very different. We get injuries, we get coaching changes, we get form, we get whatever. And by the way, we're still in 2020, and <laughs> who knows what 2020 is going to throw, uh, uh, throw at us going uh, going forward. But a lot of really, really positive things when it comes to uh, uh, American players, including the potential transfer for, of Serginho Dest to, I said, arguably the best team in the world, which is Bayern Munich.
2: Well, and if I told you we'd be celebrating a great weekend for Americans in Europe, and it'd be a weekend where Christian Pulisic didn't even play because that's he's true. injured. Uh, because, you know, he's considered the standard bearer of this whole generation, but it just speaks to the depth now, and there's lots of other guys to keep track of as well. So it's, uh, yeah, know, it's exciting times for sure. Okay,
1: so let's, let's transition a little bit into just other stuff that's going on. And I mentioned uh, Bayern Munich. You know, we covered the, uh, the Bundesliga for a number of years. It's a, it's a really, really interesting uh, uh, league. And I learned a, a whole lot, um, not just about the Bundesliga, but about Germany. And um, it was really interesting to delve into it. And we wish our, our colleagues over there at ESPN uh, all the luck as they uh, have taken over that uh, that property. Is it is it a good thing or a bad thing that Bayern Munich came out and in their very first game just completely annihilated Schalke eight to nothing? I mean, I, I saw uh, a tweet from uh, Gary Lineker who's pundit, a uh, very famous pundit. And I doubt he watches a lot of Bundesliga, but obviously he was watching this game and, uh, you know, a very um, facetious and sarcastic type of way of saying it's it's basically over. And that was a reaction of a lot of people. It's like, this is, is this, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? What, what just happened?
2: Yeah. It's interesting that uh, the Bundesliga and Syria kicked off this weekend. Both those leagues are dealing with the same issue. Juventus having won nine in a row and Bayern having won eight in a row. And unless you're a fan of those two teams, if you care about those leagues, you are concerned by that. And you're sort of thirsting for somebody else to win it. And so you go into each season kind of trying to talk yourself into somebody else being able to challenge them. So to take Germany first, I'll say this. Two seasons ago, Dortmund topped the table for much of the campaign. Bayern ended up pipping them in the end, but it came down to the very last round. And all of us came away from that feeling like, uh, it was sort of trending Dortmund's way. Dortmund then went on had a very good summer, while Bayern were looking very shaky going into the next campaign with Niko Kovac and a bunch of people were actually picking Dortmund to win it. And then lo and behold, Bayern get rid of Kovac, they bring in Hansi Flick, they take off, they end up winning the league by 13 points, they win the treble, and they pick up Leroy Sané, pick up where they left off this season, eight 0 over over Schalke. And as you mentioned, there's a sense that they've completely reasserted their dominance there, and, and we're back to thinking that this is this is a formality and that little Dortmund moment is gone. I will say, of course, I think Bayern are going to win the Bundesliga. They would be my pick. You'd be a fool not to, you know, if you were a betting man, to not put your money on Bayern. But Dortmund are sneaky loaded this season as well. Um, the fact that they were able to hold on to Sancho for another season because under normal circumstances with no pandemic, somebody would have met their asking price for Sancho this offseason. I'm sure... The way they sort of mapped it out, they envisioned probably losing Sancho this summer. And then as it turned out, because of the pandemic, nobody wanted to pay their asking price. So they decided, well, you know, we're not going to sell him on the cheap. We'll hold on to him for another season. So lo and behold, they have Sancho for another season. They have Holland for a full season. uh, Royce, as I mentioned, if he can ever get fit, the emergence of Gio Reyna uh, and then guys like Julian Brand and Thorgan Hazard, uh, you know, they add Jude Bellingham to that midfield, uh, Emery Chan for a full season, who looks like he's going to play more at the back rather than the midfield which I'm fine with. Boy, all the pieces are there. If Dortmund can ever not do Dortmund stuff and, and and blow leads and drop points that they shouldn't drop, they might be able to run roughshod over that league too and make this more interesting than Come most on. people expect. Yeah, Come man, is not just wishful thinking on my part? Come on, Mossy. Fool me once. <laughs> Fool me once. Come on, man. I mean,
1: I've seen this before. Uh, we, we've all seen this before. and Everybody gets excited. And oh, this is potentially it. And uh, they're, they're really stocked and they got great depth. And this is where it's at. And then, like you said, it just, it, it, it never happens. So I, I, I'm a scarred and scorned lover and I don't want to get hurt again. I have a fragile heart right now when it comes to the Bundesliga.
2: No, no, listen, I hear you. I mean, Leroy Sané, if he can stay fit, he is going to be an incredible signing for them. They're actually in better shape at the back than they were at the end of last season because Nicolas Sula is now completely healthy. Same with Lucas Hernandez. Uh, they did lose Thiago and uh, Alaba seems unsettled uh, over uh, negotiations for a new contract. But uh, nevertheless, I mean, I'm not Bayern are still Bayern. And of course, I think they're going to win the Bundesliga. Uh, I just think Dortmund could be very good as well.
1: All right. Well, let's finish up this segment here uh, before we move on to uh, an EPL segment um, with uh, some La Liga stuff that's, uh, that's going on there. All sorts of uh, talk when it comes to goal scorers, uh, what's going to happen. And, you know, La Liga, anytime you talk about Le- La Liga, obviously you're going to talk about Real Madrid and, uh, and Barcelona. Real Madrid looked, shall we say, rusty uh, at this point. And, and you know, they, they need someone to score and they need somebody up top.
2: Yeah, listen, uh, this was the same game I watched seven or eight times after the restart last season. The only difference was you didn't have that Sergio Ramos penalty to turn it from a nil-nil to a one-nil. So they begin their campaign uh, with a nil-nil draw away to Real Sociedad. And yet there's just not a lot of goals in that lineup if it's not Benzema scoring. Uh, Now they're counting on Hazard having this bounce back campaign and also Asensio being fit uh, for the full season. Neither one of those two played. Uh, which in Hazard's case, he's not fit right now, which gets his second season off to a weird start for him. But so uh, that that is the big issue there right now. They did the only move they made; they didn't sign anybody, but they did bring Martin Odegaard back. Uh, from loan. He had been with Real Sociedad, so he faced his former team this past weekend, and uh, he flotted right into the starting lineup, I thought played well. I'm a big fan of it. It's crazy that Norway have two talents like Holland and Odegaard to build around the next few years, so he's going to be a, a very good addition in the midfield, but it doesn't address that goal-scoring problem, uh, which is why it's kind of intriguing that you now hear that Edinson Cavani is being offered to Real Madrid. Cavani is a guy who uh, didn't re sign with PSG. He's swatted away all of their offers so far from the likes of Benfica, but now it's getting close enough to the end of the transfer window that he's starting to get a little nervous. And now his agent is starting to offer him around, including you here to Real Madrid. And to me, it is something to think about because uh, he's better than Jovic, who has been a disaster. And so Cavani could give him a, a, a guy behind Benzema that you know can come in and score some goals. So that one's intriguing. And then on the topic of Uruguayan strikers, we did have this big Luis Suarez news uh, today. Uh, he finally extricated himself from Barcelona. They reached, he had one year left on his deal. He was looking to rescind this contract, but he still wanted to make all the money that was owed to him this season. And so they, they, they sort of met him halfway. They're going to pay him some of the money. And so Luis Suarez is out there now. And all signs point to him signing with Atletico Madrid. At, at one point, we thought Juventus, he did pass that language test. Uh, but it it turns out it's going to take too long for him to get an Italian passport for him to sign with Juventus. So Juventus are going to go for Eden Dzeko instead. And it sounds like Suarez is going to go to Atletico Madrid, which is absolutely fascinating that Barcelona would let him go to a direct rival like that. But uh, uh, we'll see. It it sounds like that's the way things are going to go. Why
1: doesn't Suarez just go to Real Madrid? Or is that a bridge too far?
2: (laughs) That is is a bridge too far.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we'll see where everybody uh, lands and where they are sitting ultimately when the music stops of the transfer window. But I'm sure there's plenty of... uh, Uh, a few more songs to go before uh, ultimately we see how it all uh, how it all ends up. All right, let me just finish it up by here by uh, reiterating the fact that it was, uh, it it was so wonderful to see Weston McKinney. Um, You know, the history of Americans in Syria are, are few. And look, When it comes to a Weston McKinney or a Michael Bradley, they are much better players than I ever was. And they have gone and taken this incredible pathway and this unique pathway to have this experience in Syria. And they are doing it at a completely different level in terms of the uh, the clubs that they went to, whether it's Roma with Michael Bradley or uh, Juventus, obviously, when it comes to Weston McKinney, and I couldn't be happier uh, for them. I, I played in a different time, literally in a different <laughs> century, uh, and certainly for a very, very small club. Uh, but I'm I'm so happy that there are more Americans, and I hope that there are more Americans in the future that get that experience uh, playing in Serie A and, and living Um, and working in uh, in Italy hope he's not the last all right as I said when we come back in the next segment we'll be diving into all the EPL action and all of the drama and theater that EPL look let's be honest gives us on a continual basis and there was plenty of it over the last week Uh, don't go away Uh, EPL coming up uh, next in the next segment moving on All right, we're back uh, with an EPL review segment. So much going on in the EPL, and look, uh, we we uh, we kid and we tease uh, our good friend Alex Dowd, who, uh, for those that maybe maybe have missed it, is a avid Chelsea. Uh, supporter Uh, he's not going to talk again this week because (laughs) his Chelsea team struggled I mean look in a game where there's a red card it's always going to change a game and certainly there's no shame in losing to Liverpool which ultimately they did to nothing but the Chelsea of 2020-2021 was something and still is something that we 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 have high expectations for. And a lot of that is relative to the big names that have come in, whether it's Werner or Hobbit, uh, or whether it's just the amount of money that they have spent. And as I said, there's no shame in losing to Liverpool, but when you prop yourself up and you position yourself as a possible challenger to Liverpool, this was not this was not a good result. I guess I'll I guess I'll start there, Mossy. And my question to you when it comes to Liverpool, You know, it's difficult just in normal circumstances to to repeat, especially when you have a historic type of year and the amount of points. Do you think that this Liverpool is better? And we'll talk about the additions, and I'm sure you will hit upon the additions or addition when it comes to Liverpool. And two, are we already seeing a problem when it comes to Chelsea, or does this this need time in order to really come to fruition?
2: Well, you know, I texted you that the football gods had really done us a nice favor this weekend because... It's so perfect that that Chelsea played Liverpool. The rivalry between these two teams is red hot right now. Uh, You can tell from talking to friends of mine that are fans of uh, each team, there's a lot of antipathy there. Uh, Began late last season when uh, Lampard uh, criticized uh, Liverpool for being arrogant in the way they celebrated uh, a victory late in the season over Chelsea. And people like our colleague, Zach Kenworthy, big Liverpool fan, really took offense to that. He's had a bug up his ass about Frank Lampard ever since. And then Klopp... Uh, with his barbs about all of Chelsea spending. And then Liverpool go out and spend the money they did this past week. So Chelsea fans accuse him of being a hypocrite. So I felt like the backdrop uh, to this game was actually more interesting than the game itself ended up being. Why don't we start there first before we dig into the match? What do you make of all this back and forth? Does Klopp uh, have a right to... Criticize clubs like Chelsea for the way they spend. Is he being a hypocrite because Liverpool have thrown a fair amount of money around as well since he took charge? Uh, what, what do you make of uh, this whole back and forth? Uh,
1: yes, he's being a hypocrite, um, but I completely understand what he is doing. You know, part of his job. You know, Klopp has not built himself up, nor I guess is he at least on the surface in the way that Mourinho or others have built themselves in turn, even Sir Alex as master manipulators uh, as, as, as wonderful string pullers of emotion and uh, public perception. Klopp has been much more, or at least he's been perceived as much more organic and that, that that's not something that he does so that he has kind of added this to his repertoire. I actually think is, is a good thing because the manipulation and the, uh, the way that you deal with the press and the strategic way in which you plant seeds and, and say things, I think is part of being a, a coach. And certainly when you're the coach of one of the great teams in in the world, uh, you have to pick and choose your moments. And is he in danger of looking like <laughs> he is uh, you know, crying or whining um, and has no, has no real... And, and shouldn't be able to stand on that, given what you said of what, uh, of what Liverpool is? No, I don't think so yet. But it is at times maybe a little rich when, when, it, comes from, when it comes from it. I'm not saying that he, that he shouldn't do it. But look, Liverpool have spent plenty of money. And if, if Klopp wants to go clo- uh, coach a team in the mid or lower level uh, and really kind of get his bona fides, uh, of Of coaching a team up, fine, he can go over there and do that. But until that time, I think he does need to recognize, and he does, believe me, he, he does, that he is he is at he is in charge and has been given a very fine and expensive machine to be able to uh, to race.
2: And I will say I, on on the game, I know Chelsea can plausibly point to the Christensen red card as having been the determinate uh, factor in this game because up until that point, Although Liverpool had more of the ball, uh, more of the impetus, they, they hadn't created that many clear chances. And Chelsea were looking dangerous on the counter with Werner finding space down that. Uh, left wing. And by the way, I, I was very impressed with Timo Werner's performance. Uh, I know there was some debate about that. I, he, there were a couple of one-on-one duels with Fabinho in the first half that Fabinho got the better of him and people were holding that against Werner, but still all the running he does, all the, the danger he creates, he earns that penalty in the second half. So uh, I, I thought overall, very positive for him. I thought he was the one bright spot, but so Lampard can plausibly say, look, up until the red card, our game plan was working and the game was kind of evenish. Um, and then it, you know, the red card completely changed the game. And it, frankly, the second half, that felt like an offense-defense scrimmage at times for Liverpool. It was just like a training session, the way they were knocking the ball around. But nevertheless, I thought from the start, that felt like a very confident Liverpool performance, a team that wanted to make a statement that, look, hey, we're, you're, you're, everybody's making a fuss about all these other teams, but we're still here. We're still Liverpool. We're still the team to beat. I even thought the first 40-some-odd minutes before the red card, it was just impressive the way they controlled the game and were knocking it around. So, yeah. So uh, I, I think it's a, it's a very nice statement win for Liverpool. Uh, I'm sorry, you, you want to... No,
1: I just, I just... When it comes to red cards, yes, I mean red cards change games and It's one thing if it's a red card where it's by the letter of the law or it's a controversial one or there's a problem but Liverpool put themselves in the position to be able to have that red card change change the game and and as you mentioned it's another thing if they were just completely under uh, you know under attack and they weren't even in the game or anything like that so yes yes it did change the game and yes, from a Chelsea perspective, you're going to fall back on that and say and say yes. But it really, been it really would have been interesting to see how it how it played out had they been 11 on 11. But yeah, I mean, come on,
2: let's. And let- that penalty came about because of a wonderful ball by Jordan sure, Harrison, exactly. who I thought was maybe the best player on the field uh, in the first. Maybe he should have won Player of the Year last season. Uh, but nevertheless, he has to come off at halftime, and then they bring on Thiago, who uh, and listen. I think the NBC guys went a little bit overboard. They, it was just like this Tiago love fest. Uh, they showed him at one point in the first half sitting on the bench, looking like any other player would look if you showed him on the bench. And Lee Dixon made a big point of, look at how relaxed he is. And that's what really sets him apart from other players. He's so relaxed. And then after he came on, every five-yard square pass was like, oh, look at the way he caresses the ball. And they – you know, the, the truth is he made an incredibly boneheaded play in committing that penalty on Werner and gave Chelsea a lifeline out of nothing. Quiet, Mossy. Stop. Don't. You're <laughs> killing the <laughs> narrative. And they did they barely mentioned that. Uh, but no, he's a wonderful player. He's going to be a wonderful signing. Not just from the standpoint of just freshening things up but also I think tactically you you saw in that community shield against Arsenal you saw it a little bit in this game teams are going to sit back against Liverpool now they've learned not to give guys like Mane and Salah so much space to operate and so they're going to force Liverpool to kind of break them down and having a midfielder of Thiago's ilk I think is really going to help in that regard he is going to add another dimension to that midfield so that's a great signing and I also think Diogo Jota is a terrific signing as well I know the the money they ended up paying got pretty close to the Werner deal so people say well why not sign team Werner. Well, because the role that Jota is going to play is one that Werner was uh, overqualified for and one that he wasn't going to be satisfied with. Liverpool, as we talked about, they're walking a little bit of a tightrope here. Because that front three is so settled and uh, have had so much success and they fit so well together and they're going to be difficult to dislodge, you're looking for a guy Who's good enough to play for Liverpool, but who is going to be okay being mostly a backup this season? And Jota kind of hits that sweet spot in a way that I think Werner didn't. And so, to me, it's a move that makes perfect sense. And so, to me, they've made two excellent signings in the last week. They've they really uh, spruced up that squad. And, and and with this performance and the moves they made, I think they really reestablished themselves as you know clearly the team to beat. And and I don't know if there was any doubt about that, but if there was, to me, I, I feel pretty good about. Uh saying yeah, that they're the team to beat again. I mean, you don't need
1: to overhaul it, uh, obviously. You just need to tweak it here or there. And when you can tweak with a Tiago, I mean that's that's pretty good. But I will say to your to your point about showing on the bench and that, you know, the whole body language thing is something that we do in sports, uh, and and especially in sports television, we love to uh attach meaning to you know, there's a there's a famous Bobby Knight reaction to you know, what a game face is and what a game face isn't. And a lot of that is, is true. I, and I, I try not to read too much into how people react or they're like, if it's obvious and a player is screaming and yelling at a coach or, or flipping, flipping them off or something, then, then you got to talk about it. But the, the way that a player sits or doesn't sit or the way the player stands or doesn't stand, uh, I think it's really, really difficult uh, to, 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 uh, to attach meaning to to something like that in a uh, in the context of uh, uh, of sports uh, before we 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 leave these two teams Keppa I mean uh, uh, we've seen goalkeepers melt down over the years and we've seen goalkeepers where you know at a some point at some point it doesn't have anything to do with their physical abilities and look this is the most expensive goalkeeper in the world and that it's much more between the ears than any actual physical. Uh, limitation that he may or may not have right now. Are we seeing this? Is this concerning uh, to you? And more importantly, I guess, to Alex Dowd and and company when it comes to Chelsea?
2: Well, we won't know about Alex Dowd because he refuses to chime in on this podcast. But I'll say this, on this topic of Liverpool and Chelsea spending money, both those clubs broke the bank for goalkeepers in the same summer. Uh, Liverpool signed Allison for what at the time was the highest transfer fee ever paid for a goalkeeper. And then Chelsea came right afterwards and signed Kepa. And you look at the way those two keepers have panned out and it was illustrated in that game. Allison makes, stops a penalty from Jorginho uh, while Kepa makes a mistake. He, he makes in the second goal. So um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's a player. I, I think it was Lee Dixon to give him credit on this. He said, you know, if you're a midfielder, and your confidence is shot, you can kind of hide it and just play it safe and sort of, you know, if you're a goalkeeper, there's nowhere to hide. If you you have a goalkeeper whose confidence is shot, it's going to show itself. It's going to be a major, major problem, and it is right now for Chelsea.
1: Well, all of this means, and we'll move on from this, all of this means, and I think is pointing to the fact that Chelsea need a superhero, and there is only one person that can fit that role, and that is that all of Chelsea's ills, whatever they may or may not be, can be fixed by the return of Christian Pulisic. We don't know when that's going to happen, and maybe Christian could uh, should stay out a few more uh, a few more weeks here because you know he continues to be injured, and we've talked about this time and time again. Don't know when he's ultimately going to uh, going to come riding in as the cavalry and, and finish this, but um it's it's not good for Christian Pulisic because it's just yet another period of injury and we've said time and time again that he just can't have any type of consistency when it comes to uh to being healthy. So uh, anything else with uh, before we move on to some other stuff Mossy?
2: No, that's it on that game.
1: All right. Uh the other big news when it comes to the EPL and, and certainly when it comes to signings is the bail back to Tottenham uh, situation. And right now, correct me if I'm wrong Mossy, it's it's a loan, is what we're what we're talking about here, as opposed to a sale. The saga of uh, of Bale at Real Madrid, seven years. I think uh, I, I always looked at it as a success. Look, I know he wasn't a consistent starter, but when he was there, he was phenomenal. That he at times has looked like, once again, body language that he is. Pouting uh, doesn't really, didn't really change the fact that I still look at it as a, uh, as a success. Uh, I guess, first off, do you look at it as a success? And him returning to Spurs, what are they ultimately getting? And does this make the? I guess it's a dumb question, does it make it make them better? Unless you feel that he's completely shot and done, does this make them better?
2: Listen, I've said this about Gareth Bale. Thinking the Madrid median fans have been unfair to him is the correct macro view of that situation when you look at his seven years there. But over the past 12 months, Bale has given off a serious whiff of washed upness. And the British media, because they view everything through the prism of the Madrid median fans being unfair to him, they've kind of tended to ignore that or attribute it to him just being in this terrible environment uh, that's weighing him down. And of course, when you take him out of there and put him somewhere where he's happy and loved, he's going to flip that switch and become this great player again. We'll see. I'm not so sure. Uh, But listen, I'm, I'm, I'm glad he, he made this move because uh, I, I said this before, I'll say it again, the whole hoarding of players, uh, as a neutral fan of the game, uh, it's more interesting having Gareth Bale playing week in, week out for Tottenham or James Rodriguez, who, by the way, is off to a phenomenal start with Everton, playing week in, week out for them, than sitting at the end of the bench for Real Madrid. I'm glad that these two guys were able to extricate themselves from that situation and go somewhere where they're actually going to play and we're going to see what they have left in the tank. And I guess the, the James example would be encouraging if you're a Spurs fan because that's another guy that Real Madrid had absolutely no use for and look at what he's doing with Everton. So perhaps uh, Tottenham and Mourinho can catch lightning in the bottle with Bale as well.
1: Relative to what I said at the beginning of the podcast about the Spurs doc, this makes sense completely. Okay. Because number one, Mourinho is about himself and the power and the leverage of that name. And, you know, Bale has already said that talking with Mourinho, this is part of what has, has, has enabled this to happen. Um, so that's, that's the good part of it. The second part is not so good in that it reflects exactly what I said about this Spurs team in that they are milk toast. They are soft and, and, and look, they, you know, they, 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 they scored plenty of goals and Son uh, is, is scoring goals at will. And obviously uh, you know, Harry Kane is, is, is wonderful. So do they do they need him yeah you can always use a a goal scorer and somebody who who is dynamic but he just kind of i'm talking about bale right now he is a spurs type of player in that is he really going to run through a wall for you I, I i don't know but i do think that it makes them better and it is something that uh that i will watch how how he is used or when he is used i you know i don't know but you know, it's gonna be it's gonna be fun to see what they ultimately uh, look like. What else, when it comes to EPL, is standing out to you, uh, Mossy?
2: Well, I mentioned Everton; they beat yep. West Brom five two, so they're looking good. They're looking fun, really. And those I'm already looking ahead to those Merseyside derbies with Liverpool and Everton; those could actually be entertaining uh, this season. And then the other thing would be Manchester United, who lose to Crystal Palace. And United, to me, are a case of how an underwhelming transfer window can really undercut the momentum of a club because they had such a good second half of last season. And we all felt like maybe they had turned the corner and it was really something to build on, but it was all under the presumption that they were going to go out and make some moves uh, during this window and and plug some of the, holes they still had. And instead, the only player they've signed is Van de Beek, who's a very good player. He scored a nice goal this this past weekend, but wasn't really filling a need. With Bruno Fernandez and Paul Pogba there, I felt like that's a bit of a luxury signing. On the other hand, they have some clear holes at the back, center back, left back. They probably could even use like a a better center forward than Igalo. And, And yet they haven't addressed any of that. Now there's two weeks left and the fans are getting antsy. And some of that negativity that they had kind of you know, the, the, you felt like the, the second half of last season, the dark clouds had kind of lifted, and now because of this this frustrating inactivity in the transfer market, the fans are are grumbling again, and some of that negativity is coming back with United. So it's going to be interesting to see how the next two weeks go.
1: Are we uh, are we being disrespectful in that if you look at the actual table, and I know there's one, two, three, four, five teams that have won their first two games, and it, and and it should be said that Man City has yet to even play a game, but. Are we being disrespectful to Leicester sitting at the top of the uh, of the EPL right now? Or are we, I mean, I don't know if anybody expects that to continue ultimately when this all gets shaken out. Or are we being disrespectful? And this probably shows you how far Arsenal has come down. Are we being disrespectful to Arsenal by not mentioning them uh, right off the top?
2: No, I mean, in the case of Leicester, again, if you had offered Leicester at the start of last season fifth place, they would have happily taken it. But it's the way that it played out. They had such a good first half of the campaign and then kind of fell apart in the second half. They won just four of the last 17 Premier League games. And so it left a really bad taste. And so you wondered how they were going to mentally bounce back from that. And and so far, very well. I mean, that is still a very, very talented team. And so, uh, yeah, give them credit. So far, so good for them. And Arsenal, I think people have spoken plenty about them uh, under Arteta. And yeah, I mean, the consensus is that they are heading in the right direction. They have the right manager now there. So I don't think any of those either those clubs are like legitimate contenders to win the title so that's why we're not going crazy over them being at the very top of the table now but both good teams absolutely
1: so then you know you're not buying crystal palace to to win the title either <laughs> also at uh undefeated 2-0 no no okay it's not happening with them. That. okay that's fine that's fine anything else uh stick out to you when it comes to uh the ep mossy uh no that's it all right um as Masi said, there's there's plenty to come and plenty of twists and turns, and uh, while you look at the table, it, it doesn't necessarily <laughs> mirror what the reality is when it comes we, to...
2: Uh, we neglected to mention this, but uh, Tottenham did make another signing, a very talented young Spanish left-back, Sergio Reguignon, uh, and his signing did spawn uh, Tim Sherwood, one of the great uh, internet clips. Uh, I think I sent this to you guys. I, I have never seen... Premier League snobbery so encapsulated in like a 15 second clip. I mean, we don't have to go down that vortex this week, but uh, I mean, that that for people that don't know, Google Tim Sherwood and Reguignon, that is well, you
1: can't you can't do that without paying it off, Mossy. I mean, <laughs> give the people what they want. Uh, it It's it's legend. It, well, it will it will be legendary. I think it already is legendary. But explain to the people what you're what you were talking about.
2: So in addition to Gareth Dale, they, uh, Spurs acquired another player from Real Madrid, uh, Sergio Reggioni. He's a very talented young left back. Who
1: where, did, where did he play last Where Where is he coming from?
2: Well, Real Madrid are his parent club, but he played for Sevilla last season. So two seasons ago, he emerged as a starter for Real Madrid. He put Marcelo in. Hold Marseille on a
1: second. Where, where, where is Real Madrid and Sevilla? Where, where, what team Spain. Is, they play play in Spain. Would that yes. be the first division or, or, or lower division? Correct. <laughs> <First, laughs> just checking. I just want to make so, sure.
2: So two seasons ago, he emerged as a starter for Real Madrid. He put Marcelo on the bench. Then Zidane came along. Zidane inexplicably doesn't rate him, so he he loaned him out to Sevilla, but he did very well there, helped him win the Europa League. He's been capped for Spain. Anybody that follows football the last couple of years knows this is one of the best young left-backs in the world, and it's a very good signing for Spurs to get him. And so former Tottenham manager Tim Sherwood was asked to comment on it this week. And, I mean, it was just the most – like dismissive, like, well, he hasn't played in the Premier League yet, so how do we know this guy's any good? I mean, it's all fine and good to be signing players from these clubs like Real Madrid, but you don't know until he actually steps foot in the Premier League if this guy's actually a good player. I mean, it was just... <laughs> Tim Sherwood, by the way, who, you know, the, the backstory there is uh, he, he played for Blackburn, and Blackburn are a club that famously, in the summer of 1995, thought about signing a young French midfielder named Zinedine Zidane and didn't because A, they weren't sure how he would adapt to the Premier League. And B, they felt like they didn't need Zidane because they already had Tim Sherwood. So, And that story has been told many times over the last 25 years. So if you're Tim Sherwood and you're sort of intertwined in probably the most infamous, ridiculous uh, English club overthinking kind of guy adapt to the Premier League story ever... You'd think you'd have a little bit more self-awareness, and yet, boy, he just doubles down on that line of thinking every time he opens his mouth. It's really mm-hmm. extraordinary.
1: Yeah, I mean, look—not not to defend him—and and, and we'll, we'll we'll finish it up here. But you know, the, the reality is that leagues do have identities, and leagues do have styles. I think you can agree with that, Mossy. That and 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 different ones, and and unique ones, and the ability to adapt and to adjust for a player is crucial to his or her success when they come from. A different league and a a different country and a different culture and maybe even a very different style of play, but the you know the 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 old tried and true type of it's a much more physical league uh, when it comes to the EPL. I can see where you could think that and where there are certain examples that you could you could point to, but I think it is very very limited uh, moments when a player comes to the EPL. And isn't able to deal with or adjust to the physical nature of the league, and I think it's also it paints the EPL as almost uh, Neanderthal uh, in, or caveman-esque type of style. And I don't—I actually don't think. I think it—I think it downplays the quality that exists in the EPL when you fall back on the the physical nature of uh, the EPL. While that may have been the case in the past, I don't think that it that it is the case anymore. And by the way, the irony of that is that maybe the influx of international players and the change when it comes to the the, the composition or the makeup of the, of the teams has maybe moved it away uh, away from that. But you know, we'll see if a right back or sorry, a left back who is, as you said, widely considered to be one of the uh, the great left backs in the world, who has played at a high level and certainly played for teams and in a uh, in a league that is oftentimes looked at as even the highest level, can make that adjustment and has the ability to deal with somebody pushing or pulling or kicking or doing whatever it is that Tim Fjord or anybody else thinks is not done anywhere uh, is not done anywhere else. All right, uh, we will uh, take another quick break here. And when we come back, we will uh, dive into the Ask Alexi segment of our podcast. So don't go away. Moving on. All right, we're back. And it's time for the Ask Alexi segment. Uh, we use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there, or you can use uh, hashtag Ask Masi. You can ask either one of us, but you use it out there on all the different platforms, whether it's uh, Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or anything else out there to get us the message, to get us your question, your comment, or your concern. And we pick a few each week and we read them off as we are about to do. Mossy, what did the folks want to know this week?
2: Uh, first up, at ShanoMac8, if Nagby is as good as you say, why hasn't a European club come in for him?
1: Ooh, that is a good, good question. All right, so first off, you're assuming that nobody has ever kicked the tires or has inquired about Darlington Nagbe, and I would, uh, I would say that that's wrong. Okay, there are certainly teams out there that have made uh, inquiries about him. Now, his attitude that is well documented when it comes to uh, the national team is. I think, and for those that don't know, Darlington Nagby, who I feel is the most technically gifted American player playing the game today, and I still feel that, uh, he has been very public about the fact that he does not want to play for the US men's national team. And as I said, a lot of that is rooted in his desire to be grounded. I suppose, literally when it comes to the amount of travel that, that exists, uh, that you're an additional travel that you have to do when it comes to the, uh, the national team. Uh, while it saddens me, there's nothing I can do to change that. Uh, but I do think that this is a, a man who thinks about himself and thinks about his family and thinks about his moment in, in life and time in at times very different ways than other professionals, uh, other professionals do. He is much more, I guess, content and satisfied with his position and lot in life the way it is, whether it was playing with Atlanta or or anybody else, but I guess playing in major league soccer than others. And maybe that works to diffuse the possibilities and the opportunities out there when it comes to him in that, why should I waste my time and effort? Because unless it is ideal and perfect. He's not even going to entertain it. I think. I think that's where it comes comes into play. Uh, <clears throat> right now, he's injured. I mean, it's not as if he has a a long Polissyk esque type of history of injuries. So he is durable. As I said, I think he is talented. I think that Darlington Nagby could play at any team in the world. Darlington Nagby could be doing exactly, and I think even more than let's say a. Uh, who we've talked about already on this podcast, Weston McKinney. And this gets into the, you know, the, the perception type of, uh, uh, of situation. You know, that he plays in Major League Soccer, probably works against him in terms of opportunities. And, you know, that's not, that's not me making excuses. That's just me giving you the reality of what is going on. You know, when I, when I was watching uh, Weston McKinney, who I think is a very good player, maybe potentially he can be great. But when I was watching him play for one of the great teams this past weekend in Juventus, playing in Syria, and what he was doing, I thought to myself, how many players that exist right now in MLS could be doing not just the exact same thing, but even better? And maybe that's sacrilege to even think or to, uh, uh, to say, but I think that there's plenty of players that are playing right now in Major League Soccer that, if given that opportunity, would be able to do it. And either they're not getting the opportunity because of the league that they play in and the perception that people have of that, uh, of that league, or they just haven't had you know, the different timing or the circumstances or a million different things that uh, play, play into it. All of that is to say, Shane O'Mac, I just don't think that the right situation has come about. And I think the specific person that we are talking about here in Darlington Nagby, he is so unique in the way that he thinks about things that I think a lot of teams will just move on and, and go to somebody, uh, go to somebody else. That's maybe much more open to a, uh, a possibility when it comes to it. And just because somebody is playing at a super club, doesn't mean that there is not a equal or even a better that may be playing someplace that you just don't consider to be of quality. I mean, is that a diamond in a rough? Maybe, but um, you know, and that's that's the that's ultimately. And I know I'm getting much more big picture here, but that's ultimately the challenge of Major League Soccer: is to change that perception, is to offer that credibility when it comes to the talent that I believe we have, that I believe that can play in the best clubs and in the best leagues around the world, if given that opportunity.
2: Uh, okay. Well, Nagby did, uh, just to finish this conversation off, did almost go to Celtic um, mm-hmm. uh, back in, I think it was after the 2016 MLS season. Uh, and and then it, w- it was reported that he was, he was gonna go. And then the, the deal between Portland and Celtic collapsed at the last minute. And actually, that set off an interesting debate back then, a debate that was uh, reignited recently by Matt Doyle as to whether an MLS player at this point leaving to go to Scotland is, is kind of selling itself short. Is is that a step up? Even, even if it's to go to a club like Celtic. It's a step down. What are you talking about? He's too good for Celtic. Are you kidding me? Come on. Yeah. I mean that, that, no. and, and Mark McKenzie, of Philadelphia union has been linked with Celtic uh, recently. So people have been sort of examining that question. And the
1: only and... thing that you, the only reason that you would do it because it is a step down, but. The only reason that you, could, that you would do it is to use it as that stepping stone because there is much more legitimacy and credibility given to somebody coming from Celtic to that next move than there is if you're coming from Portland or someplace else in Major League Soccer. So strategically, it may be a smart move, but don't tell me that it's a step up in terms of the quality. And as I said before, someone like Darlington Nagby, he's too good for Celtic. They don't deserve him. <laughs>
2: uh, next All right, up, what else, Masi? Uh, at Pedro Navas, uh, 820. Uh, opinion on Gio picturing, that's Gio Reyna. Yep. Uh, picturing himself as the number 10 instead of Pulisic. I feel competition is good. Uh, what uh, Pedro Navas is alluding to was in an interview with uh, our good friend, Grant Wall. Uh, Grant asked Gio what role he envisions Uh, playing in the national team and and Gio sort of uh, suggested that maybe as a number 10 playing directly in front of McKinney and Adams and because I guess Pulisic was just handed the number 10 at Chelsea people I guess now view him as a quote-unquote number 10 I I really don't but uh, so I I guess uh, Pedro Navas is suggesting that uh, there might be some competition there between Pulisic and Reyna Uh, I I I prefer Pulisic out on the wing, and so to me they're completely compatible. But I mean, do, do you do you even accept the premise of this question that there's somehow some competition there in the context of the U.S. team between those two?
1: Okay, so Gio Reyna is 17 years old. Okay, uh, we've already anointed him uh, and basically have not penciled penned him in now, starting for the U.S. men's national team. I'm not saying that that. That isn't, that isn't appropriate, but we still haven't seen what Gio Reyna looks like from a U.S. men's national team perspective. Uh, so, uh, and, and sometimes it can change drastically. Having said all of that, I am much more comfortable with 17-year-old, inexperienced, from a national team perspective, Gio Reyna, starting in the middle for the U.S. men's national team than Christian Pulisic, Okay. But that, what, what that does is then, and, and you're absolutely right, that competition is good. And Greg Berhalter is going to have a bunch of choices to make. Because if you, if you agree right now with my premise that Gio Reyna should be starting in the middle, let's just say everybody's healthy. And that's a, that's a big if. Let's just say everybody's healthy. You have Josie Altidore right now who still, as long as he is healthy, is, and that's not necessarily a good thing, but that's who you're going to start up top, you know, what what uh, Zardes is doing is great, but still, I think ultimately, if jo- if uh, Josie Altidore is healthy, you're starting him up top. Then, as I said before, Giorena right underneath him, and now you're looking at now you're looking at wings and Christian Pulisic. Put him in the best position to succeed, and obviously the best position to succeed with the U.S. Men's National Team. I still think it's out there uh, on that left where he does the most damage, where he can do one on one. I think when it gets more cluttered. Uh, and more chaotic inside in the middle, I think he runs out of uh, uh, runs out of ideas. Uh, but that also forces the other question is okay, if you put Christian Polisic out, out on the left, does Jordan Morris come into your uh, to your thinking? And if he does, where does he go? Does he go out on the right? or is it a I mean do you start? Jordan Morris over a Christian Pulisic on the left. I know that's sacrilege to say that possibly Christian Pulisic can't start. These are all champagne pro- problems, as Tata Martino would say. These are all uh, these are all wonderful, wonderful things. I love the fact that even at 17 years old, Giorena has the confidence in himself and that beautiful arrogance to say, "Yeah, this is my position. This is where I'm going to play, and that this is where this is where I want to play." Uh, I love that this generation um, is able to articulate and express where they play because let's be honest, we have raised a generation of tweeners in in the fact that so many American players, while they may be talented and technically gifted, I have no idea what position they actually play. So that the fact that one of the the great young players that emerging that is emerging right now has the wherewithal and the understanding to be able to say, this is where I play. This is my position. I love that. I love that. uh, that That's happening. doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen uh, when it comes to the national team, but I love that he's, uh, he's doing that and I have no problem with him in that position.
2: And uh, we'll end on this Um, at Kansas chap. What's something you'd like MLS to bring back from the OG days.
1: (laughs) The OG days. Um, Well, you know, I'm, I'm on record and I will repeat uh, saying that I thought that the 35 yard penalties, um, uh, shootouts, if you will, literal shootouts um, were great. And I would love to see those brought back. I would love to see, and for those that don't know, you have, you start the ball at 35 yards, you have five seconds before you have to have taken the shot and um, I think it much more fairly uh, replicates and represents what the game is in that there is dribbling involved, there are angles involved, there is motion involved, the goalkeeper can come out, you don't have to worry about staying on the line and all that kind of stuff, um, and then obviously you shoot. I think, it much, I think it's a much fairer representation and therefore a much fairer way of deciding a game than traditional kicks from the spot and uh, penalty kicks when we are when we're talking about the game, so I would love to see that. And as we all know, it wasn't necessarily MLS that came up with this uh, because if you look back in the NASL, they they used that. It is a very Americanized type of thing, and therefore it will, in many people's minds and eyes, be looked at a scant because of the fact that it is <laughs> such an American type of thing. But I think if you actually talked to people out there uh, around the world uh, they would love it and I think it would make for great greater drama I think as I said it would be fairer and I would love to see that brought back in terms of OG things that existed anything anything pop out to you Masi?
2: I must say I did I did like that OG shootout and uh, that's like my guilty pleasure that, you know, cause that's a, a very inauthentic thing to say, but <laughs> <laughs> I would not be mad at all if they brought that back. I really got a kick out of those shootouts.
1: It was fun. It was, it was, and look, there's, there's strategy involved. And as I said, it's five seconds. You have five seconds to actually take the shot. So you could dribble up, then go around the goalkeeper and the clock is ticking down and you have to have made contact before that five seconds is out. So it doesn't have to go in the back of the net. Or it doesn't have to cross the line before the five seconds. You just have to uh, complete that shot. Your last touch has to happen before uh, the five seconds. And there was all sorts of different strategies. And people would lift the ball up. People would chip the goalkeeper. People would dribble around the goalkeeper. People would start and go out and kind of serpentine uh, in order to get a different angle. And and that for me, look, I'm not discounting the importance and the skill that's involved in taking a, a traditional penalty kick from the spot. But we all know that 80% of the time when that happens, a goal is scored. The ball goes in the back of the net. And I think I, I that's the, the, the percentage. That i have to look up what the percentage of uh successful attempts when it came to the 35-yard shootout, but I would venture to say that it's below 50%, I would say. So that's a I think that's a good thing. I think and and as I said before, it, it just it mirrors the game much better than anything else. Mossy, anything else uh, from Ask Alexi? That's it. All right. Well, uh, as you know, we, uh, we, we, you don't know because I'm telling you right now. Well, I will tell you, we have come to the end of the show. And as you do know, at the end of the show, uh, each and every show, I give you my uh, my one for the road. I was thinking back, Mossy, about uh, retirement. I, uh, in, in, in my career, I retire, I retired twice. And so... Usually people retire once, but if you're me or, or a handful of others, including even Landon Donovan, um, you have multiple retirements. In what would have been 1999, I was 29 turning 30. So I was coming into a whole new decade of my life, into my 30s and the uh, century was coming to an end. We were coming into a whole new millennium. I was playing at the time in Kansas City for what then were the Kansas City Wizards. I was coming off of a horrible year. We were a horrible team. I had a great time in Kansas City, but we were a horrible team. I had spent basically the 90s and the last decade burning it hard at both ends um, and taking advantage of every opportunity on and off the field that came my way uh, not regretting it for a second, I'd do it all again. But when you burn it that hard for a long time, it can certainly take its uh, take its toll. And I came to the realization at the end of the, the ninety nine season that uh, I needed to stop. I didn't know for how long, and so therefore, while it ended up being a, a retirement, we ended up calling it a stepping away. I'll never, I'll never forget sitting down with my agent uh, and and trying to figure out how we were going to frame this. Because uh, all we knew was I wasn't going to play the next year. I needed to, to, to step away. And so we called it a, a stepping away. I was incredibly fortunate that I even had the opportunity to do something like that. As I said, I needed to kind of get back or rejuvenate both my body and my mind. I needed to get myself straight, as is the case uh, often in these situations. uh, There's a girl involved. I ended up chasing a a girl. I drove cross-country a couple of times with a buddy of mine. As I said, I chased the girl who ended up being my wife. I did television. Um, I did a lot of different things that I wouldn't have been able to do had I continued playing, and I knew that I wasn't going to be any good to whatever team that I was playing for. Uh, don't cry for, uh, for Kansas city uh, because while in the moment it may have looked like I left them in the lurch, they actually used that spot to then go sign Miklos Molnar and then go on in the next season winning MLS cup, which certainly uh, I, I was happy for them, but I also said, wow, the year that I leave, they go, they sign a great goal scorer and they go all the way to the, uh, the promised land and win uh, MLS cup, but I was fine with my decision. It worked out, uh, with the girl. It worked out from a human perspective in that I came back as a much changed and better soccer player and person for having that, uh, that year. Uh, I was very, as I said, lucky to be able to take that year and take that time to become better. Um, I could have plowed through and keep in mind also that uh, by making that decision, I destroyed any chance that I had of ever coming back with the uh, the national team, and so therefore the twenty the two thousand and two World Cup uh, that was out the window the minute I decided not to uh, to play that year. But I don't regret it for uh, for a second. In that. Um, all of the different things, like I said, and it also introduced me to something that later would become such a huge part of my life, which was television. I did a television show for ESPN uh, with my, and I met and not met, but came, became friends with, because I had met Rob Stone before, uh, but Rob Stone and I did a, a television show, uh, a weekly television show that we recorded in Tulsa, Oklahoma, so it introduced me to so many things that have become a huge part of my life, and I was very lucky to have had that year. And um, I look back on it with fondness uh, of all of the different things that had that that, that, that I was ex- that I was able to experience. Uh, I didn't know it at the time that it was going to be so important, and I cried like a baby even making the decision. I remember in the locker room <laughs> uh, finding a. a uh, a a empty part of the locker room and just crying like a baby because that period of my life I knew was coming to a close Uh, and I didn't know where that next period was going to lead me and certainly in the next year without the game how I was going to function because that was all I knew but um, it worked out okay and uh, I'm glad that I was able to do that. Mossy Anything, uh, anything else that you wanted to touch on uh, this week when it comes to soccer or not soccer? We started out talking about our, my complete panning of the Spurs documentary, and we end with me talking about my, uh, my rebirth and uh, my uh, enlightening, if you will, in the year 2000 as I traipsed across the country and chased my to-be wife and uh, got into television. I also did the Olympics, by the way. I went to uh, Sydney, Australia, worked with Andreas Kantor and NBC and did the Olympics down there. So it was a, an eventful year.
2: Well, you, you said your post-playing career has worked out okay. You're uh, hosting a podcast with me that's produced by Alex Dowd <laughs> and Luis Magdalene, so it hasn't worked out that well.
1: Oh, I wouldn't have it any other way, gentlemen. Uh, it's, uh, it's always a pleasure to be, uh, to be hanging out with you. Masi, have, uh, have a great week. We got some MLS action that we will be uh, doing. You got any uh, League MX or stuff uh, on tap? What do you got for, uh, for this week? Anything?
2: Uh Yes. Uh, next one is this upcoming Saturday. Uh, I want to say it's Monterey against Tigres, but <laughs> let me double check that. <laughs> That's all right. That
1: That's out. all right. <laughs> but you're, you're working uh, Liga MX. I know you're uh, hard at work at that. Uh, I'm watching. And um, as I said, we got some MLS midweek action that we'll be uh, talking about. Uh, when it comes to the things that are going on, both the game that we're doing and bigger picture stuff that's going on with MLS. So uh, tune into that. Thank you so much, uh, as always, for downloading and rating and subscribing uh, to the podcast. We appreciate it. uh, And we are incredibly humbled by the fact that so many of you do this on a weekly basis. Uh, We will see and uh, you will hear from us again next week. And until then, size the day.